Welcome to the Red Letter Christians podcast. Red Letter Christians gets our name from the Bibles that highlight the words of Jesus in red. And we're aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. We know that the loudest, most prominent voices representing Christianity in America haven't always been the most beautiful or the most faithful voices. And we know that the way we change the narrative is by changing the narrators. We are committed to amplifying the voices of people who are dedicated to Jesus and to justice. So let me just say to all of my red letter Christian friends and anyone else who's joining us that we are in for a treat this evening. Uh, we have as our guest and author of White Evangelical Racism, there it is, Dr. Ann Thea Butler, uh, scholar of church history here in these United States. I mean, a scholar, scholar. If you want to know something about the Pentecostals, you 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 go to her. The expert in her field uh, and in American religious history. And in addition to that, in addition to being a good historian, also someone who has that gift and practices that craft of translating what we've learned from academic study into the public square. She's a commentator. You turn on your TV, you'll see her on CNN, you'll see her on MSNBC, you'll hear the folks on NPR calling her to get a word on what's happening in the church. <laughs> and here she is with us tonight to talk about white evangelical racism. Thank you so much for agreeing to be with this Motley crew. <laughs> Oh, I don't think it's a bodily crew at all. Thank you, Jonathan. And thank you, Shane. Y'all are great. And I just, I can't think of a better way to spend Sunday evening. Now, if I had a piece of pound cake in front of me, it might go a little bit better. But since we don't have any pound cake, I'm just going to have to sit with the sweetness of y'all being in front of me. This well, evening. when we're done with this, Rona, I, I don't make a pound cake, but I make a uh, banana pudding. So there you go. I'll, I'll bring on. a banana pudding to our next gathering. All right. There you go. What I'm talking I, about. I, if I wanted to start, I, a lot of folks who were on tonight have already read the book it was the book mm -hmm. for the month so people have been reading but for anyone who hasn't read it yet i want to encourage you to get this book and to read it it's critically important and i wanted to start by asking if you would share a story that you waited a little while into the book to tell yep. but i thought it just made it crystal clear how all of this history and all of the analysis that you're doing is growing out of a personal experience. Yes. Would you share your personal experience from the church in LA? Yeah, I will. Um, I have to set it up just a little bit. Um, all of Please you probably do. can remember, or if you, you're too young to remember, you've heard of the Rodney King uh, trial and, the, and everything that happened. And when the policemen um, basically were acquitted, of beating Rod Rodney King, it was a big thing in LA. It was a riot or you call it an uprising depending on who you wanna to talk to. Well, there was a ministry in LA that was between three churches, um, Hollywood Presbyterian, uh, Kenny Elmer's church, which was Faithful Center Central and the church that I went to, Church in the Way, which was pastored by Jack Hayford. And so they had a Love LA meeting where they wanted to bring together the three congregations to pray for the city and pray for peace. This was a few weeks after everything happened. And so I went to that meeting. I'd been very active in the church and several ministries, uh, had met the pastor's mother before everything. And so I ended up sitting next to her 
at this service that was a joint service with all three congregations. And it was time to greet the neighbor next to you. You know how you do when you're in church, right? Greet your neighbor next to you. She turned to me and she looked right me dead in the face and said, welcome to church on the way. And I was crushed because I was like, I've been paying my tithes, my offerings, my work, my time. Have spoken to this woman time and time again and said hello. And she didn't recognize me because this was the first time there was a black congregation visiting. And so she just assumed I was with them and was not with the church. And so Mm. it was this moment where I felt alienated, you know, and I also felt like I've never been seen. Mm. I'm, I'm invisible to these people. Doesn't matter what I do. I'm invisible because I need to just blend into what this is and I'm not seen as a person. And mm. so this was right before I was getting ready to go to seminary, Fuller Seminary, as a matter of fact. And it really had a profound effect on me. So when I was writing the book, I thought, what is the best way for me to explain what this is like being a black evangelical in an all white space? And that was it. Because I felt like, you know, at that moment, this moment where we were trying to talk about racial reconciliation after the city had been on fire, Mm. then Mm. it was this this same kind of, you know, I I don't want to say ignorance, but basically nonchalantness and not paying attention that got us here in the first place. Right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think I think it's a helpful introduction to why all of this history you're telling is so important, because. It's an act of exclusion that was imagined as an act of hospitality. Yes. And I think so often white Christians think they're practicing, you know, the good and loving ways of Jesus Mm -hmm. while we're excluding. So you've told a long story of how that's come to be. And uh, that, that's why I think this book is so important. I know you got questions, Shane. You want to dive in? <laughs> your first question well, I, I did think that that was so, such a helpful uh, and, and hard to read, you know, a story of your own experience. And yeah. when, when you when you kind of rewind, you start looking back and reflecting on the history, you, you one of the things that you say is racism is a feature, not a bug of mm-hmm. evangelicalism that it's not um there, there's it's kind of like there's something in the water is almost what it, what it yes. feels like and so t- tell us a little bit about um what how you how we can begin to identify that and um and and how you started to see it too because you do it so well in the book but yeah, yeah. I think, you know, one of the ways for me, I'm a historian, right? So I've been teaching about evangelicalism, American religion for over 20 years. And one of the things that I started noticing was the way in which things get framed are through a lens of whiteness, first of all. But secondarily, it's a lens in which they assume that everybody is on the same page and everybody's not on the same page. So if you take, for instance, slavery and you think about what has happened with churches splitting and everything, there's, there's you know, been racial reconciliations but we haven't really talked about how we got there, right? Mm-hmm. Or that this history is what bred all of the separation in the first place, whether we're talking about, you know, the churches that split in slavery, or we're talking about what happened in the reconstruction period, or we're talking about the ways in which, you know, black Christians were spoken about during the civil rights movement as being communists because they wanted to have, you know, equality instead of Jim Crow. Or when we talk about issues about the family and we say, oh, there's all these unread what mothers. And it's like, oh, are black people the only ones that have unwed mothers? Where is this language coming from? Right. But I really started to I knew it was there, but I really, really, really started to see it 
probably this decade, I would say in the 2000s, basically. And that started to happen, of course. It was a little bit with the Bush administration. And then it really got there with Obama. And then, you know, we just went down a cliff with with Trump, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so I think that for me, what what flicked was everybody asking this question about why evangelicals like Donald Trump. And I was like, that's not the question. The question is, is what brought evangelicals to this moment and what brought them here is racism. And if racism is in the theology, in the way you read the Bible, in the ways in which you behave, in the ways Mm -hmm. in which you preach, in the ways in which you segregate yourself, in mm-hmm. certain parts of the town, then mm-hmm. you know it's a feature. It's not a bug. It's this is yeah. this is not a glitch in the matrix, like they say. This is this mm-hmm. is how it is. And I think that's what really became apparent to me. You know, I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church, mm-hmm. and uh, I grew up in the you know heyday of the Moral Majority movement. So oh, wow. I was caught up in all that as a young person. And when I began to realize, you know, there was something weird going on here. I had to go back and learn, you know, my own people's history. Yeah. And that got me, you know, into trying to understand um, a lot of what you talk about in this book in the 19th century, you know, in the development of a slaveholder theology, slaveholder religion mm-hmm. that uh, I think people often think, well, yeah, they said this stuff back then. But but dig into that a little bit. What what did they do with the Bible then that we're still doing with the Bible now? Well, yeah. that's a good question. Um, what they do then is they, you know, I wouldn't say it's proof texting, but it's turning the text to where you want it to turn to. So no. in other words, you know, one of the things I talk about, I open that chapter out that you're talking about with the present day story where I'm not going to name everybody because you, you, you already know if you read the book, what happened to Lecrae. But basically, you know, this, this moment in which you say, well, it was good to have uh, slavery because black people could become Christians. I tell my students, if you tell me that in class, I'm giving you an <laughs> F straight out. You get an F, okay? Because if you you embrace the slaveholding Christianity in here and you tell me that this is the case, then you get an F because that's the same justification slaveholders use, right? And so what I talk about in that chapter is how this thing gets put together, whether it's about how you read scripture and how you justify this through the curse of Ham or the curse of Cain, or you justify this through polygenesis, the dual creation where black people were this creation that was an aberration and white people were the correct creation. And so therefore black people are not human. Um, There's a lot of ways we can look at this and, and and how you think about it. But people still have this idea today. I tell a story in the book about a famous black evangelical who gets told by somebody in the, you know, that she means that she's not the same creation as white people. Mm-hmm. I mean, here we are in 2021 with people believing this stuff that was taught in the 19th century about a hierarchy of races, how the Bible speaks to that and mm-hmm. how, you know, slavery was still okay. was just justified. But if mm-hmm. you leave that out and you go, you know, after slavery to reconstruction mm-hmm. and to the redemption period, then we begin to see how this religion of the lost cause gets put together that, you know, this was a moral cause. This was a moral issue and moral issues are the things that make real Christians. Right. Mm -hmm. And so when you talk about the family, you talk about, you know, purity, all of these things that, you know, evangelicals are really big into and and use it to kind of beat over everybody else's head. Now that stuff started with 19th century with the, you know, reconstruction and redemption. And Mm -hmm. they had a large effect on how African-Americans were dealt with. But I think also the thing that I don't talk about 
a lot in the book, but is always hanging in the background. I want to bring this up tonight because I think it's really important is the, is the way in which violence is justified against mm. black people. So this past week we had this thing yeah. and Shane, you'll know this that happened in Philadelphia where there are these bones of these move kids that mm. were at, you know, at the museum at Penn. And one of the things I connected this to was polygenesis in the 19th century, because I said, if you don't think black bodies are human now, then you are just like these people in the 19th century who didn't think God created black people. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I think this kind of, you know, people don't say it out loud. They'll say, I, you know, I'm an evangelical. I don't believe this. But it, it permeates things so that when you get to leadership and we start to talk about who are the leaders and, and the people who are respected in the church and all this, it's, it's hierarchy. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's white men first. And mm. then it's everybody else down the, down the pike. And yeah. so I think that we need to really think about the ways in which this theology influences how you think about leadership, how you yeah. think about politics, all of that. Mm. I, I want to I wanna peel away a couple other layers of that, because the, the theology, one of the things that you, you do real well uh, in the book is uh, kind of um, talking about how we separate the individual sin from the mm-hmm. social sin. Oh, and this, yeah. this is something distinctively, very distinctive to kind of white evangelicalism, yes. right? That we, mm-hmm. uh, and, and you, you have this quote um, from Thomas Dew, who was a slaveholder and was also the president of uh, uh, William and Mary. And so he says, slavery is against the spirit of Christianity. Mm-hmm. We are ready to admit that general assertion. And then he goes on to say, but the, the slavery was generally condemned in the scriptures, you say. But then he said, so he ends up saying uh, we, slavery is against the spirit of Christianity, but the master doesn't commit any offense by holding slaves. Right. So it's, it's kind of like yes. it's. It's double talk. Really reconcil- it's totally double talk. And you know, I, when I read that, I thought of one of uh, John and I's favorite quotes from Jerry Falwell Jr. When <laughs> he's asked about his fidelity to Trump, and he says, "I don't look to Jesus when it comes to shaping my political beliefs." Mm-hmm. Right? Like so, like even something like immigration. It's like we have this idea: yes, I should care about an immigrant personally, but that really doesn't have yes. any Thank political. Ramifications. So maybe say a little bit about more about how you see that because you unpack it so well. But it's this in, like individual versus yeah. social transformation. Right? Yeah. Well, it's it's really interesting because you know not to give a plug to another show on here, but Vice tonight is doing a whole thing on evangelicals <laughs> and racism. And mm. I saw a little clip of this, and the guy was just he absolutely said this, and I was just like, I can't believe it. It's like my book. He said, you know, well, this is about individual sin. This is not about corporate sin. You know, I, I, if I'm individually racist, I need to repent of that sin. And you see, people just think about it as something that they are doing, but not something that they are participating in as a system. So you can say, I'm not racist. I, you know, I have black, I have black friends, I have Asian friends, I have Latino friends. But at the same time, you could be voting Republican and, you know, participating in a system, right? And participating in a system that doesn't want to have, you know, immigrants, a system that wants to roll back affirmative action, a system that wants to roll back all these things. And basically says that, you know, law and order, uh, anybody that gets shot, that's your fault. Right. Mm. So, I I mean, I'm just giving you some examples. But the the basic thing is that this focus on individual sin is actually what all of these racial reconciliation things ended up being about. Everybody repented. Everybody cried and hugged their black brother and sister. They took some pictures. They made some statements. And then what happened? Nothing. Not a thing. 
And then they went back to business as usual, right? Yeah. Because all of this is predicated on, we need to have a, a show of repentance, but it's not true repentance because you're not changing the structures. Yeah. Mm. And so that's, good. that's the thing. Ooh, I, think, I think of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you know, when Donald Trump said, I don't have a racist bone in my body. And she said, mm-hmm. well, I'm not as worried about your bones as I am your head, your heart, and your policies. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh, man. But I think this... This your historical analysis that you offer that shows what this looks like in different you know eras of history is so helpful because it, what it reveals is that you know what what you're doing so quickly here now you know going back and forth between then and now is that the patterns haven't changed that much yeah you know a lot of times we like to imagine these kind of like you know, wicked slaveholders back then who were all mean and, you know, they were conspiring. But you read these folks closely and they, you know, wax eloquent about their family, black and white, and how they have the best intentions for everyone. And, you know, so there's this kind of sense that, you know, if God has blessed the order, then Mm. God has blessed white supremacy. And the people who are trying to maintain white supremacy are just trying to keep good order for everybody's sake. Exactly. And so I, I appreciated how, you know, in the 20th century, you went in hard on how Brother Billy Graham was right there yeah. doing that. Te- yes. Teach a little bit about Billy Graham, because I think sometimes we like to put Billy Graham in the good category because, you know, he didn't go the way of Falwell and others when the religious right got formed. He said he wanted to back off of that, frankly, because he had already been doing it with Nixon for you know long enough to see the problems. But at any rate, teach us a little bit about, about what that looked like in the 20th century and the way a lot of what we see as mainstream evangelicalism really did, really did prop up white supremacy in practice. Yeah. You know, the way I talk about Billy Graham is that Billy Graham is like this, this basic sort of figure about what white evangelicalism looks like. George Marston said an evangelical is anybody who liked Billy Graham. And so yeah. I think, you know, he's sort of the exemplar of all that. But what people need to understand is while Billy Graham, you know, bust on the scene in the late 40s, first with Youth for Christ, and then when he has that big Los Angeles um, revival, you know, when he starts to talk about communism, communism is really two things. Communism is one, the real communists, right, who, who are in the Soviet Union, but the other communists are over here trying to do civil rights. And so the ways in which King has spoken about and everything else, I mean, he's kind of wishy-washy. The way I talk about him is he's an accommodationist. But there's two things that Billy Graham really does that I think are really important for American evangelicalism. First, he is the one that connects evangelicalism squarely to politics in the 20th century. It begins when he has a prayer meeting, you know, revival meeting on the Capitol steps in 1952. And he tries to get to Truman, but Truman's not paying attention to him, but he gets to Eisenhower. And mm-hmm. Eisenhower and he become buddies. And then after this, he is friends of every president, whether or not he likes them very much because we know he didn't like JFK very much. But let me talk about this middle part because I think this is important. And all of you who read the book, I want to tell you that next month, the American experience is going to have a big thing on Billy Graham on May the 17th and Mm -hmm. yours truly will be in it. So you'll get to see a good good arc about Billy Graham, I think that'll Mm -hmm. sort of lay it out for you. But one of the things he does with King is that he says, come pray with me at my Madison Square Garden and, you know, revival. And he does. And, and that was a great moment. But right after that, King writes to him and says, you're going to Texas and Charles Price Daniel is there. Now, I don't want you to go stand on the, on the, um, you know, dais with this guy who is a big time racist. He loved Jim Crow, Texas governor, 
Billy Graham says, I'm going anyway. And he goes. But see, here's the other thing about Billy Graham. Billy Graham had a choice to join any Southern Baptist church he wants to. Which one did he join? W.A. Criswell's church in Dallas, Texas, big time racist, hmm. 1953. That's where he held his, his, you know, his membership. Now, I ask you, why would you hold your membership at a place like that? Well, that's because it's what you're comfortable with. So when we get into the 60s and we begin to see how he starts to turn on King and he doesn't like all of this, you know, marching and going on and everything else. And he says, it's not going to be until heaven till we see little black boys and little black girls walking around with little white boys and little white girls. He's pushing that off to heaven again. This is a theological move, right? Mm -hmm. Because it says, well, we're not going to have that here. But, you know, I have some interracial meetings and all that. But, you know, basically this togetherness that you all want is not for here. It's for later. And I think that's really important to understand that Billy Graham is not this, you know, um, contemporary figure who wanted the civil rights movement. He wanted the status quo to remain. And I think that this is something that is really important to see about a figure that is so revered that even he doesn't want to have this kind of togetherness unless it fits a certain kind of way. Yeah, yeah I want to stay there for just a second, sure. because I, and I'm going to tell you all listening in. It, some of this might be hard for, for you to hear. It's been hard for me to to re- rethink Billy Graham. He, my, my wife came to Jesus at a Billy Graham crusade. The way she would say it, though, is the sky opened up. She saw this beam from heaven. It was actually the Lord she was dealing with and all that. But it was at a Billy Graham crusade. And, you know, I we've become friends with Jerusha. Uh, Duford uh, Armsfield is, is uh, the granddaughter of Billy Graham. She's a part of Red Letter Christians and she loves her grandfather, you know, and so I heard stories of him and Martin Luther King, you know, their relationship and um, their friendship, even going on vacations together. So when you're unpacking this, uh, Dr. Butler, <laughs> you're, you're deconstructing some stuff, but I want to say, I want to say with the, the eschatology and the idea of like, the kingdom of God coming on earth as it is in heaven, you sort of see this battle and you name that really well in your book where Dr. King, you know, he's got his, I have a dream speech where he talks about the children of slaves and slave owners in Georgia living together, you know, and then Billy Graham said only when Christ returns, will little white children and little black children walk hand in hand in Alabama. And I think this is really important, right? Because this is one of those things we still see today is that, that, you know, this world, it it is a terrible mess because of sin. So we just got to save souls when we die. And we're losing a lot of people in white evangelicalism because we're promised some life after death and people are going, is there life before death? You know, doesn't, doesn't the good news of Jesus have Mm -hmm. anything to say about police killing black bodies in our streets? Like doesn't this, and and so Dr. King has this radical social gospel. Uh, Billy Graham's got this individual personal salvation, but Dr. King talked about both of them as the feet you got to walk on. There's a personal salvation and a social. So say a little bit more about that. Like, you know, the theology that we begin to see holes in it. Yeah. I mean, you know, you see holes in in Billy Graham's theology because he's saying it's all going to be afterwards, but he's asking you to get saved in the here and now. And what are you supposed to get saved in the here and now for? to do good works, right? Well, a good work is making sure that everybody eats, making sure that everybody is not discriminated against, making sure that people are not doing, you know, not getting shot. 
And with Graham's theology, basically what it would say is, well, we just got to wait till heaven to get everything right. That is what that theology does. That kind of eschatology says that until Jesus comes back, nothing is going to get fixed so that basically the environment can go to hell, you can go to hell, and all the rest of this stuff, and nobody's going to fix anything. Hmm. But King is saying something different. And I think that, you know, if you think about what Graham is doing during this time period, he realized that he gets pushed because you know he where is he at when king is assassinated on a golf course in in um asia someplace and he you know he he's stunned and all of this other thing but he shouldn't have been surprised because this is what the the format and ferment is in this country but mm. he doesn't he doesn't seem to feel that because all he's thinking about is the individual again i need mm. to get individual soul saved but then at the same time he's hobnobbing with the president's it's about him. And see, this is where we have to really look at Graham and realize Graham was about Graham. Graham wasn't about all the rest of the stuff. I didn't put everything I could have in the book. But one of the moments I think about Graham is really interesting is in 1970 when they do this big Jesus thing on the mall and everybody starts fighting and it starts to be kind of almost a riot situation where he's trying to uplift America and doing this kind of Christian nationalism thing. You know, Graham really, his relationship with Nixon messes him up. Yeah. And then he sort of changes afterwards, but you never really get him to the point where he figures out that he has to do more than just this, this sort of photogenic relationship with black people. Because what he does is he just turns to what I talked about, this colorblind evangelicalism, where he puts out the waters up on stage. He's got people like Andre Crouch. He's, you know, he's got other folks up there and Rosie Greer and all these folks that show up at his, you know, um, his evangelistic crusades. But this is about, you know, look, I've got a black person next to me. Look, we're together, but you're not really together. Do you know what mm -hmm. I mean? And that's mm -hmm. a different kind of relationship. And I think this is where Graham, for me, misses it. So when people talk about how could Franklin Graham be the way that he is, I'm like, well, look at his daddy. Mm. You know, Franklin Graham is just like the id of, of Billy Graham. He did all the stuff at Out Now that Billy Graham couldn't do Out Now because he's too polite to do it. I, I just had a uh, journalist that was uh, down here uh, and they were going to interview Franklin Graham and then come come my way. And I, they said, what should we ask Franklin Graham? I said, ask him uh, uh, about his dad's line about the hard right has no interest in religion except to manipulate it. And they asked him and I can't wait to see that. Clip. Oh, that'd be interesting. <laughs> but, That's yeah. good. So much of what you're saying about Graham is a, you know, the kind of, honest assessment a historian can make from a little bit of a distance. And mm -hmm. as I hear it, I, I, I'm challenged by it because I think it's not just about Graham. It's about all of us yeah. and, and all of the ways that I, I have seen how, you know, you can be a kind of benevolent and inclusive white Christian and still be a white supremacist still, you know, yeah. basically believe that the order that has been set up with white people in charge needs to remain. Mm -hmm. and, and and I think one of the ways I see the contrast here between Graham and King and what you're saying is that when, you know, Graham extended the invitation for King to come and be part of his show, King came and said the prayer. Now, mm -hmm. you know, Preachers preach in different ways, but I mean, you know, King was a preacher. He could have been asked to preach, but he came and said the prayer. Mm -hmm, <laughs> exactly. The prayer. When King in 1965 put out the call, said, we need every minister in this country to come stand on the line with us. 
the Catholic sisters came, you know, mm-hmm. his brother Ralph Abernathy was with him arm in arm there. Rabbi Heschel came. Mm-hmm. Billy Graham won't know where to be seen, right? Nowhere. So, so, so there's a contrast, right? Mm-hmm. In terms of how we respond to the invitation when, when, when invited to have some skin in the game in terms of changing the system, Graham was nowhere to be found. Yeah, that's a good and word. so often, you know, yeah. so many of us have been nowhere to be found. Yeah, mm. no, it's, that's really true. And I think, you know, that's the hard part. I think people will not want to hear. I mean, one of the things that you noticed I did in the book on purpose is that I don't say white supremacy very much. And I don't I hardly say it at all, but because I want you to know this is history. Now you have to come to your conclusion about that history, mm-hmm. but you need to understand this is the way that people have operated. So what mm-hmm. does that mean? You know, yeah. and, and how do you, you know, how do you interpret that history? So I know it's hard hitting, but on the mm-hmm. other hand, it's the, it's the truth that we need to see upfront about mm-hmm. people like Billy Graham that, you know, it's easy to, to say something about Jerry Falwell, but it's not so easy to say something about Billy Graham. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to ask you about this because I hear some people that that asking about, well, what what about the folks that are not white, but still are children of evangelicalism still identify? I mean, some of them, it might be kind of like um, not the wor- primary language they use. Like we did this little book, Still Evangelical. I fought mm-hmm. hard for that big question mark with Mark Laberton, yeah. you know, at it, at it for it. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. and, but a lot of the authors in there are uh, not white, but they mm-hmm. still are comfortable with the word evangelical. And I think of groups like Evangelicals for Justice yes. that we've teamed up with um, to really challenge the theology and conditions mm-hmm. of white of white nationalism. Um, and, you know, that's led almost entirely by non-white leaders, female and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, BIPOC leaders. So, and, and you know, Sunshine Ra has written about the next evangelicals. And one of the things that he says is like, I don't have the privilege of kind of leaving that whole world right now. Like, and so I, I you know, I'm kind of interested in uh, what, how you, how you um, uh, process that, or, you know, as you, as you look at, at folks that are not white evangelicals that still are very comfortable with the word. Yeah. Um, one of the people who blurred my book said something really inter- interesting is my friend, Julie Ingersoll. And she said, you know, we have to think about the ways in which evangelicalism has poisoned us all. And I was like, whoa, this is really, this is really intense. And what she meant by that was, even if you're evangelical color, even if you're out there, then there are ways in which this kind of white evangelical racism has affected you. It has come into you in certain kinds of ways, this, this theological thinking, and how do you deconstruct that? How do you start to look at that in a different way? And I think, you know, for some, you know, evangelicals, you know, and I, I once called myself that, I would say that one of the things you have to look at, and when you read this book, if you're shocked, then that's the moment for you to start thinking about where are those spaces in your life where you have been treated, you know, and not in a way that you should have been treated. Mm-hmm. Where are the places where you disagree with how people are telling you to vote? Because, I mean, this is where it comes out. And that's why part of this book is about where politics is in the title is because it's about the politics of what you do. It's about how you use that morality as a shield to buttress people. And so, you know, they're good Black, Latino, Asian American evangelicals out here. But what has been what has happened because of that? How are you moving in the movement because of that? What does that make you do? Do you have the same kind of stances as somebody who gets all the benefits of evangelicalism, but doesn't get 
you know, doesn't have to deal with any of the hurt that other people are having to deal with that are Christian, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and I think that's where you have to start to think about this is like, how have you hardened your heart? Because there's, there's plenty of ev black evangelicals who followed after somebody like Trump and voted for him and stood beside him and, and said stuff. And these would be people that I would be charging up just as much as I would anybody else because yeah. of what, you know, what they believe. And, you know, I, I want to say this here, too, because I think it's really important to say, I think that for some people, they have become a single issue evangelical. So I call it a single issue evangelical. It's like the only thing they care about is, you know, are you pro-life, right? Mm -hmm. But you gotta be pro-life all the way through. You can't just be pro-life at conception to the time the baby drops. And then you, you yeah. forget about life after yeah. that. What about, you know, people who are sick? What about prison? What about all this other stuff? You can't just be that. And that's what I'm really trying to challenge people about is like, it's not just the racism. It's the ways in which you think about this. And so I think that what I would say is, and I'm, I'm kind of hard on somebody in the book towards the end where I say, you know, you know, Jim Wallace said, well, we got other evangelicals. I'm like, don't get it. Don't use that as a way to get out of what I'm talking about. Because yeah. what I'm talking about here is really important. And it's not just about white evangelicals. It affects everybody in certain kinds of ways. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's the number one thing that's important. I do think, though, this is, this is where I get to say the, the thing that's good. I think that evangelicalism is changing. Maybe we're going to throw away the word altogether. I'm not sure. But I do know that I think it's a moment in which evangelicals have to really examine themselves and think about is this a political term? Because I think maybe it's just now a political term instead of being a term that's about Evangelion, which is spreading the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're, we're, we're a little partial to the red letter Christian. We yeah. like that. Yeah, I like that too. <laughs> Go ahead, John. What are you going to say, bro? Well, I wonder, I mean, uh, you know, as a historian, you're, 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 desc you're, you're describing, you know, what you've seen. Mm -hmm. you know, how it actually plays out. Uh, and, you know, by other names, you know, followers of Jesus have played out uh, quite a different public witness in the history of this country. I wonder, you know, in, in what ways do you see, um, you can call it a different way of being evangelical or a different way of following Jesus or whatever, as, a, as a, an alternative witness in American life? Where yeah. would you point people for that? I mean, if, if, you know, I'm, I'm going to be biased here for a minute because I, you know, I actually, I have an interesting history, which we're not going to get into tonight, but I was baptized and raised Catholic, went evangelical and then went back to Catholic church. I, I mean, I think about people like Dorothy Day and Cesar Chavez and, you know, Come King on. and others who are doing something out there, you know, you, you know, you're working with Reverend Barber right now. I'm thinking about, you know, Vashti McKenzie. I'm thinking about people who are doing this mm -hmm. in a different way and, and really standing out there and saying, there's a different way to witness being a Christian. Yeah. There's a way in which to have solidarity with people. I mean, there's people every day who are out there, you know, in the streets working, you know, working with the homeless, working with, you know, trans people, working with all kinds of stuff, right? Who are doing what Jesus would have done if they were out there. And that's why I like, you know, when I saw y'all were asking me to do this, I was like, red letter Christians, yes, because this is the way I feel about that. I mean, if you do the red letter stuff, you're going to be all right. But if you, if you, you know, you try to mess around with the other stuff, you maybe, you know, not so great. Mm -hmm. But I think this is the moment where we have to really think about this. And, and so one of the things I've been talking about lately, and I want to relate this to evangelicals, because right now we're at a moment, right? We got a pandemic. We got evangelicals who don't want to take a shot. 
you know, so you're not thinking about your fellow man, right, or woman. You're not thinking about anybody. You don't want to take a shot. You don't want to do this. You, you know, you, you want certain kinds of things. You don't want some people to be able to express themselves how they need to express themselves. All of these things are, are not life-giving. They are, they are not life-affirming. They are, you know, sucking the life out of people. The things that evangelicals want. And so I, I keep thinking about this and I keep thinking, where is this movement going relative to what other people are doing, especially since we know that numbers are declining in the churches? Mm-hmm. How are we supposed to deal with this when, when we're being told that this is the only way that you can be a Christian, but mm-hmm. it has to be because you vote for a certain, a certain party and you believe certain kind of things? I just don't mm-hmm. think that's the case. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you, you chronicle here in the book the you know, the rise of the so-called religious right, the way the moral majority formed. And there was this, you know, a mm-hmm. very concrete effort to tie white evangelicalism to the Republican Party through the 80s and 90s. You know, it, when we go back now with the Pew data, you can see that over those same decades, the number of people who, when asked, what is your religious affiliation? They said none. It doubled every decade that that was. So, so at the same time, you know, that the that it's being politicized and it's pushing towards extremism. The number of people who grew up in those churches that want to stay has gone down, 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 yeah. down, down. And I think it does yeah. bring us to this point of asking, like what, you know, I know a lot of these folks. They're not, you know, it's not like they woke up one morning and said, you know, God is dead. I'm an atheist. No. These are people who still, you know, have deeply held beliefs that were formed in their faith that are connected to other people of faith, but they can't, they can't do it in those churches they grew up in anymore. No. Yeah, I think that, that's one of the questions we're getting. We got a few of them that have come in on the Facebook, uh, Dr. Mm-hmm. Butler, and, okay. and one or two on Zoom here. But it's related to that. And I, I, I think some folks are kind of wondering, well, I, I always hate to move too quickly to prescribing what you got to do in light of that, because I think you raise the questions and it's not your responsibility to tell all of us what we need to do mm-hmm. with it. But I think a lot of us uh, that come out of white evangelicalism in particular, it feels uh, like it still allows the colonization of Christianity to leave white evangelicalism and not go anywhere and to spend yeah. the rest of our life just deconstructing all of that toxic evangelicalism without appreciating the the riches of spirit, the spiritual riches in the, the black church. I mean, as you were in the film, you know, the, and other churches. So like Jonathan and I, I think have found a lot of life out of, immer- out of immersing ourselves in communities that are predominantly not white. But I don't yes. know if that's if that if that's the you know if, if you have some thoughts. A couple of folks out of liturgical tradition have asked, is it more resilient or you know? So I, I kind of think of Mark Galley from Christianity Today. He's now Catholic. You know? yeah. So I think yeah. there's a lot of white evangelicals that are kind of deconstructing something, but it's a kind of question mark of where where you end up next. And I, I don't know that you got all the answers, but you might have some reflections on it. Yeah. I, I mean, I think there's a couple of things. One is, I mean, for the people who who are leaving, I would say, you know, don't leave mad, just just leave. And and what I mean by don't leave mad is, is that, you know, you might have to go back and tell and get some folks. So in other words, you know, you, you got to leave in such a way where you, you just don't burn all the bridges down. And, and this was this actually was my book about like, how do I not burn down the bridge, but I show you a light from the other end of the bridge and say, you need to come on over and cross over to the other side. Ooh, I like that. 
you, you need to come on over because this is this is a problem for you. And, yeah. you know, Jonathan, something that you said was really important. They are driving people away. That's not bringing people to the gospel. Yes. They are driving people away from the gospel. And mm. if you are in a movement and you are in a church that is driving people away instead of bringing people in, then I ask you, what are you doing there? I mean, that's, yeah. the, that's the question you have to ask yourself, because if you're part of something that is creating a wedge politically and socially and everything else, why are you there? I yeah. think that's one. I think secondarily, I think, you know, Shane, which you talked about with going to other black churches and things like that. I think this is a moment where people need to find solidarity in places where they can. So in other words, if that's with, you know, different kind of churches in which you've been to before of all that. I think it's important because we have some things to do in this country. We have a serious yeah. issue with, with black people and brown people being killed by the police. We need justice. We need to think about the ways in which, you know, this is not what Jesus would have wanted. And, and, yeah. and how, do we, how do we fight for justice? How do we fight for equality? How do we fight for people not just pulling the trigger every time they see a black face? You know, this, mm -hmm. this shooting that happened last week with the young girl just hurt my heart because I'm like, mm -hmm. there's, there's, here's a violent situation, but you're gonna meet it immediately with violence? You, you are two grown, you are grown men and you can, mm -hmm. you, you know, all you gotta do is run up on this girl. You can't, you know, how, she's not good with a knife. She doesn't know. You haven't even found out anything that's happening and you're just going to shoot. I mean, it, it, to me, it's like this moment in which we have just gotten caught up between it's not the cross, but it's the gun. Mm. It's, it, you know, it's, it's not common sense, but it's just craziness. Mm. And I don't know how we do this, but I think part of what has happened is that this rhetoric, especially from, you know, people like moral majority and others, if we trace this with the religious right, the rhetoric has gotten harder, the, the vitriol has gotten deeper, the attacks have gotten worse. Mm. And what, what we now live in is a poison kind of society in which we just hate, hate, hate. And the way you get rid of your sin you know, like that young man that went and shot everybody in Atlanta mm. is I'm going to go kill my sin. I'm not mm. going to, you know, I'm not going to deal with this thing that I have, this, this sex abuse. And see, this is going to be what they use on him. But where did he learn that from? He mm. learned yeah. that in, in a Baptist, a Southern Baptist church. Mm. And, and this is what I'm getting at is like the poison of what we're doing and what we're telling people if we are preaching this kind of a gospel and expecting people to vote a certain way, to do these certain things, to hate certain people because mm -hmm. they don't fit in with the, you know, your political ideology, that you connect to a moral ideology, that's mm -hmm. where this is wrong. Because mm -hmm. see, this, where these people are, they have connected their theology to a political theology. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you're speaking the truth, Ooh. but you're speaking the truth in love. I just wanted to read right here at the end of the book. I thought this was, I thought this was so honest, so pointed, but also a real invitation. You said you're, you're talking to people who've been caught up in what we've been describing. And you say, you must join with people you don't agree with in mm. order to make a more perfect union. Mm. And you say, I am one of those people. I know you. I don't like the lies you've told yourself and continue to tell yourself and others in order to try to hold on to power. And mm. that's the truth. But that's also, let me just say, that's also a very gracious invitation. Yes, yeah. it is. You're inviting people to come and be part of a coalition with you. 
Mm-hmm. And with other people who've been hurt by this system, mm-hmm. I wanted to know when I read that, what you got inside of you that makes it possible for you to extend an invitation like that? <laughs> what you got inside of you? A Jesus, maybe? <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, because I mean, I, I would like to just walk away and I could, you know, I, you know, I don't have to talk to these people, but I do think, you know, one of the things I regret, and I think this is really terrible is I've lost friends behind mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. I, I've lost mm-hmm. some really good friends that I had to quit talking to because they were just so, they have gotten into their Republicanism so much. They have forgotten about Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I just was like, I got to cut y'all off. Cause I mean, I mean, long time friends, I got mm-hmm. one left that I talked to. And, you know, and he's fine. And and, and as a matter of fact, he just called me yesterday. But it's been really interesting because I'm like, I want to talk to you. I want to try to understand where you are. I want us to try to understand each other. But we can't talk in this environment when you are always thinking about how evil I am because I teach at at a university or how terrible I am because I want justice. And Mm -hmm. I just don't want to talk about somebody getting saved and that's it. And I I just don't want to, you know, do the things that you want me to do. Mm -hmm. I want to try to find a way that we can think about what's going on in this world, whether that's climate change or the pandemic or how we can help folks. And to me, this is not, you know, apart from the gospel. Mm. These are the things that, you know, if Jesus was here right now, he'd be concerned with. Yeah. And I, I just don't understand that why it is that these people can't see folks lining up and, fo- you know, to get food during this mm. pandemic. Why mm. people are just hurting for fourteen hundred dollars and wishing they could get two thousand dollars. Right. Mm-hmm. You know why people need unemployment benefits and why they don't need to be, you know, kicked out of their house. Mm-hmm. And these are the kinds of things I think that where we can talk to each other. But I also think that we need to stop messing around and, and help people to understand that they've been hoodwinked and bamboozled by, by you know, media outlets, these Republicans who want to stay in power, who spending their money on, on, you know, on, on uh, women and stuff. I know we ain't going to go there, but I'm just saying it's, it's time to really look at what is the thing that you're supporting? Does it bring life or does it bring death? Mm-hmm. And if it brings death, why are you supporting it? Mm. Mm. Such a good word. I, I, w- I was uh, listening to you and saw this this uh, comment from Matthew over here in the Zoom where he's talking about people leaving the church right now. And, and uh, oh, Dr. Butler, I think I, it was this, this uh, study I just saw, like the Lifeway, the evangelical study that said like two thirds of young people, 18 to 30, are leaving the church. And the number one answer, this is just like a couple of years ago, the number one answer of why they're leaving is because of social justice yeah. and politics. It's because of the exact same things that we're doing. So for those of us, for those of you that are listening in that like still are very comfortable with the word evangelical, that want more and more people to know Jesus, this should be a deep concern of ours that um, one of the biggest obstacles to Jesus is this kind of toxic version of nationalism mixed with whiteness that yeah. is trying to camouflage itself as Christianity. And you've done such a good job at helping us name that and uh, inviting us into something better. So, Jonathan, you got any, you, you got any last, uh, we're, we're, we're running down. We got all kinds of feedback on the socials. People are loving it. Uh, but I, I can't keep up with all the questions, but we'll, well, we'll I call it a night here. In I a just want to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We need a church and we need a movement. We need a Jesus movement that's listening closely yeah. to those who are crying out for justice. And that's also listening closely to those good scholars who are paying close attention 
to the facts, to the history, to what has happened and what has brought us here. And you're doing that work. And and I, I so appreciate it. So thank you so much for being with us. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so we're not, much for having me. We're not going quite yet. We're going to let Dr. Butler send us out in just a second. With, uh, but I, I wanted to let you all know, first of all, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Butler. Thank, thank you all for joining in. We can be one more microphone to, to amplify what you're doing. Uh, we, we believe in you. So thank you, Dr. Butler. Thank you. The same here. Same and here. You, you're going to send us out with a, you end your book so beautifully with this, this kind of benediction. We thought what better way than to use that to send us out. So you, you, you do that for us. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I want to preface it by saying that um, somebody asked me, why did I end the book this way? And I said, well, it's a kind of an altar call, but it's a reverse altar call. I want you to run away from some of the stuff you've been doing. <laughs> and I want you to come on and really come to Jesus in a different kind of way. And so I ended the book in this way that what my hope is for you when you read this book. I hope these words find root in you. I hope they trouble you. I hope they sear your soul. I hope they make you change. There is only a little time left, but there is time. The time is now. Mm. Amen. Receive the benediction. Amen. 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 Thank, Thank you all so, so much. This was yeah. really great. Thank Good you. Night. We'll keep in touch. Bye, we will. Take care. Hey, y'all, this is Shane Claiborne with Red Letter Christians, and I've got a big favor to ask of you. We want to get to know you a little bit more and make sure that you're getting what you need from Red Letter Christians. So I would love it if you would head to tinyurl.com slash rlc dash podcast. It's all in the show notes. And take five minutes to complete a little survey from you so that we can make sure that you get more of what you love. It's just an honor to be building a better world with all of you. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Red Letter Christians podcast. Too often, Christians have used our faith as a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we live in. But at Red Letter Christians, we believe our faith is not just about going to heaven when we die, but also about bringing heaven to earth while we live. For more information on Red Letter Christians and upcoming events, additional resources, you can go to the show notes or our website, redletterchristians.org. You can also support Red Letter Christians by giving a one-time donation or becoming a monthly sustainer. Just go to our website and click the red donate button. Thank you for being a part of this conversation and for being a part of this movement.